Welcome to Lompoc Foursquare Church's podcast. Enjoy the message. All right. Jesus, would you just speak to us this morning? I can already tell that I'm, I'm so excited I could become overexcited. And so I just submit myself to your will and to your spirit. I ask that you would speak to me and through me in a way that draws us closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're in a series called Rising Above. Uh, we're talking about how Jesus, post-resurrection, ushered in a new way for us to be human, uh, a new kind of life that we're available to live that wasn't possible before under the direction and the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Last week, we looked at his warning to avoid false prophets. Wasn't that fun? That's what I thought you were going to say. I'm just so glad you came back. Because one of the things that we learned was that when we, when we aligned our message or our methodology with someone who claims to follow Christ but doesn't live out his teachings, we run the risk of actually um, participating with evil. And we talked about evil being that which works against the goodness of God in people. And so I got to tell you, I sat down to, to prepare a message this morning, and there's this part of me that was like, Jesus, could we talk about something easier? Could we just talk about something happier? And God's good, and we're going to. So last week, there was a lot going on in my heart and in my mind as I was preparing. This week as well, but whereas last week we talked about a warning to avoid participating in evil, this morning we get to hear about Jesus' encouragement to participate with him and his Holy Spirit in, in producing good, the goodness of God in, in people. So I'm going to take you to Matthew uh, chapter 12 in just a second, but I, I want to give you a little bit of background first. So this is the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, if you remember the final week, which we call the Passion Week, there's this awesome processional where Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, and there are thousands of people because it's Pentecost, and they're all yelling, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna to God in the highest. And, and Jesus goes all the way in through Jerusalem to the temple. And when he's at the temple, he does a couple of things. One, he knocks over tables of, of money changers who were cheating people, making it hard for them to come to God. But secondly, he teaches, and there's a couple of days where he's teaching. And so as we come to, to Matthew, excuse me, Mark 12, Jesus is on his way to the cross, but this is one of those in-between moments between the entrance into Jerusalem and his arrest. Now, there are a group of people who were pretty committed to making sure Jesus didn't get to do what Jesus wanted to do. One of the ways they would do that, called the Pharisees and the scribes, those who were politically aligned with Herod, often they would come to Jesus when he was in a crowd and they would ask him questions, questions that they thought would trip him up. And so as we get to this passage of scripture, this has just happened a couple different times. The Pharisees, politically aligned with the, the Jewish ruler ruling on behalf of Rome, wanted to get Jesus to, to alienate either the Jews or the Romans. And one of the things that the Jews were really unhappy about was the tax burden upon them. So they came to Jesus, they brought a coin, and they said, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Figuring he's going to tick off half of the people and we're going to come out ahead. Jesus is super wise. He says, Who's, whose image is on the coin? And they say, well, that, it's Caesar's image. So Jesus says, well, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. And they kind of put their heads down and they, they walk away. Then the Sadducees come up. This is a group of people who didn't believe there was a resurrection from the dead. And so they look at Jesus and go, okay, let me paint you a picture. Jeff marries Mary. Jeff dies. Bob, his brother, marries Mary. Bob dies. Patrick 
Bob's brother marries Mary. Patrick dies. There's seven of them. At the resurrection, who is she married to? And Jesus looks at him and goes, clearly you don't understand scripture. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And they put their heads down and they walk away. And then there's this guy that comes up. He's what the Bible calls a scribe. A scribe is someone who was an expert in the religious law. His, his job was to study. His job was to understand. And his job was, was actually to duplicate their sacred texts as well. But this person has been seeing Jesus respond. He's been listening to his answers and his teachings. And something stirs inside of him. He's committed his life to the study of the Jewish Bible, the, the Holy Scriptures. And he thinks, I have an opportunity to gain wisdom from this rabbi Jesus. So he comes up to him and he asks him a question. And this is where we pick up in Mark 12, verse 28. It says, one of the teachers of religious law, that's a scribe, he was standing there listening to the debate. And he realized that Jesus had answered well. So he asked, of all of the commandments, which, which is the most important? Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord your God is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second, he says, is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. The teacher of religious law replied, well said. You've spoken the truth by saying there is only one God and there is no other. And I know that it's important to love him with all my heart and all my understanding and all my strength and to love my, member, my neighbor as myself. This is more important than to offer all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices required by the law. Realizing how much the man understood, Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So at the time that this teacher comes to Jesus and says, what's the most important commandment in the law? There were 613 known religious laws. 248 of them were dues. 365 of them were don'ts. And the Pharisees actually believed that if they could keep Torah, if they could obey all 613 of these laws as a nation for one day, the Messiah would come and their nation would be liberated. So this question, what's the greatest of all these 613 commandments was a common question that would be discussed in the rabbinical schools. The, the religious leaders, those who were studying Torah, they would often debate and discuss and ask their rabbis. And so this man sees a rabbi, Jesus, who is exhibiting a very unique kind of wisdom and he really wants to know. And so he poses the question and Jesus distills all 613 of these religious laws, these commandments, down to two. And his paraphrase as he looks at this man is this. Love God, love people. Now, now you and I know this. We're, we're LFC. We're, we're Lompoc Foursquare Church. Loving God and loving people is written on our website. It's written on our bulletins. It's written on our building, on our tents, our vans. Van, we only have one. Yeah. And the trailer, there we go. It can be two. And hopefully, it's written on our hearts. Love God, loving people. Now, Matthew, as he's recording this dialogue, has Jesus say one more thing that is profound. Jesus says, the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. 
Everything, man, scribe, that you have studied, it all hangs, it all hinges on these two commands, loving God, loving people. The man says, I agree. And Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You understand what it looks like when the kingdom of God comes to earth, when it is being expressed in a community in which you live. It is expressed as people simultaneously love God and love people. The man didn't yet know that Christ was the Messiah to come, which is why Jesus said, you're close to the kingdom of God. But he wanted to identify that this man had captured something powerful, That the kingdom of God come to earth, which is what he intends to happen through his church, is expressed by people like you and me loving God and loving people. All of the commandments, all of the prophets, which make up 25% of the Old Testament. 25% of the Old Testament is made up of the law or the prophets. The law is how to live as the people of God. The prophets are people coming alongside going, hey, you're not living as the people of God. Let me help you figure this out. 25% of the Old Testament can be summarized in loving God and loving people. Most of it is painting a picture of what it looks like when that happens. We're going to come back to this in a minute. So I'm studying in my office, and I've I've got some study materials. And and when, when I read the Bible, I almost always come up with more questions than I had before I started reading the Bible. And that's just how my mind works. I'll read something, and I'll go, okay, what does that mean? Okay, what does that what does that really mean? And, and then I work my way through kind of the, the help and encouragement of the Holy Spirit to, to have some answers. And so I looked up some of this language. And, and when he says, love the Lord your God, the, the Greek word that, that we're translating love there is the word agape. Uh, we've talked about that word quite a bit um, over the, the months that I've been here, and I know you have before. Agape is love that seeks the good of its object. Okay? Love that seeks the good of, my, of its object. So I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, How do you agape God? How do you seek the good of God when he is fully self-sufficient in himself as Father, Son, Holy Spirit? There is nothing lacking. There is nothing he needs. So how do I agape him? It doesn't make sense to me. And then I realize that I'm approaching this scripture through the lens of a 21st century man. When Jesus was speaking this parable, excuse me, this message, when, when God spoke to Moses in Deuteronomy 6, which is what Jesus is quoting, he wasn't talking to John in Lompoc in 2022. He was speaking to a first century Jewish community who saw God, understood God, and saw the world a little bit differently than I do. Sometimes I try to read scripture through the lens of my own experience, and I can actually miss what God is doing or saying. So I stepped back and I thought, what would a 20, uh, excuse me, a first century Jewish man understand this to mean when he heard somebody say in Greek that you are to agape God, which Jesus said was the greatest commandment. So when it speaks of peer to peer, agape is love that seeks the good of its object. But when it's spoken of someone in authority, um, a, 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 someone who has authority over you or in particular God, it means something slightly different. This is what it means. It says, when used of a master, God, or Christ, the word involves the idea of affectionate reverence, prompt obedience, grateful recognition of benefits received. So agape is a word that means one thing when I describe the love I have for my wife, but it means something a little bit different when it describes the, the, the love that I have for God. So as much as Wendy might like my agape to be this agape, my love for her does not demand or always result in prompt obedience. 
Ladies, how nice would that be? Scripture says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Promptly obey me. That's not what it means. But there is an obedience component in loving God. So I want to walk through these three things because they caused more confusion initially but brought me to some pretty important clarity. So when they use the word agape to say, love, love the Lord your God with all of your being, loving God in that context means I offer God my affection. That was in the words, the, the definition of the word. Now, does that sound odd to you? I offer God my affection? Because it sounded odd to me when I wrote it. Why would God want my affection? Why would God, that, that word kind of means a, a gentle fondness or liking. Why would God want me to like him? Is he insecure? Is he needy? Is there something about his personality that I haven't discovered that I have to meet this need by being affectionately inclined toward him? Or could it be that God is painting a picture of what could and should govern our relationship? When God says you should be affectionately inclined toward me, is, is he painting a picture of how a child should be responding to their father? Is he giving me permission to actually like God, want to be with him, and not view him as a taskmaster? I was, I was listening to a teaching online this week, and they were talking about their approach to Scripture. And this lady said something that just arrested my attention. It was so important. She said, I was raised by a very dictatorial, very angry, very loud father. And when I began to read the Bible, and it said God was my father, that made me a bit uncomfortable. Because the picture of a father I had wasn't safe, wasn't friendly, wasn't attractive to me. And so I began to think that I had to relate to or respond to God as if he responded to me that way. I think when Jesus uses this word about how we're relating to God, he's trying to take some of that off the table. Do you know that God is affectionately inclined towards you? That he is not looking at you with anger? The Bible actually says he delights over you with song, which means when God sees you, when he looks at you, he breaks out in song. Another passage says, God dances over you with joy. It means God looks down and sees you and Father, Son, Holy Spirit have a dance party. It's like they can't contain the joy, the love, the delight they have in you. And for some of us this morning, we were raised with a very different understanding of how God looks at us. And our, our relationship to him has been governed by this sense of perpetual disappointment in ourselves. I'm not happy with my behavior. I'm not happy with my failure. Ergo, God must be equally displeased with me. And he's just holding off in mercy, but he really knows that he should be judging me. And he's probably going to get me sometime. You cannot be affectionately inclined towards someone when you think they feel that way about you. And the testimony of Scripture is that that is not at all how God feels about you. That he loves you with an overwhelming, with an undying love that no one can separate you from. So if your image of God today is of someone who is waiting to judge you, watching to see if you fail, perpetually discouraged by your behavior. In Jesus' name, I want the power of that lie to be broken off of you today. God is not driven by your performance. 
Scripture says that, that he handcrafted you in his mother's womb, and the words used to describe you as he made you is that you were fearfully and wonderfully made. Ephesians says that you are God's poema. You are his handcrafted work of art. You are his, it's, the, it's a word that describes a master craftsman. This is why God sings over you. This is why God dances with joy when he sees you. He is recognizing his representation in you because of how he made you. So in Jesus' name, let's let shame fall from us. Let's let fear of a judgmental God fall from us. And let's allow the Holy Spirit to reshape our thinking that we may walk into the presence of a God that we confidently, as Pastor Bernie just said, we confidently acknowledge loves us deeply. Somebody needs to hear that this morning. This isn't in the notes. This is Jesus knowing what's going on in your heart and wanting to bring a moment of healing. So I'm just going to stop right here and I'm going to pray for us. Because if if that describes you, I believe the presence of God is here present to heal. So, Lord Jesus, we, we acknowledge your presence with gratitude. And we recognize, Lord God, that we often misunderstand you because we view you through the lens of our own experience. But, God, you are so much greater. Your word says that you are able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or even imagine. And for some this morning, God, imagining that we could be loved by a perfect holy God is beyond our, it's beyond our comprehension. And yet in this moment, you would stop me, that we might hear you say, you are deeply, profoundly, unequivocally loved. Lord, would you begin to deconstruct false images we carry about who you are, about how you father us? You are not a man. You are not limited in any way. So in Jesus' name, break the power of those lies that we may have embraced. And God, we choose to renounce them. We, we may have come into agreement with them, but today we say no longer, I am going to allow God the Father to define himself through his own presence, his essence, and word, rather than ascribe my own definition to him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. I offer him my affection. You know the rest of this? We just covered. Loving you is not a duty to God. It's a delight. It's a joy. And, and I just, I, I can't help escape this sense that as, as we continue to grow in our understanding of the Lord, as we, as we continue to walk out our relationship with him, it, he wants it to be a journey of discovery. As, as the more we learn about him, our hearts are open to become affectionately inclined. Just let me deconstruct any kind of religious lie you might carry. Do you know it's okay to like God? I mean, it is, it is okay to like God. It is not irreverent. You go, hey, God, you're pretty good. You're pretty cool. I like you. I, I, like, I like hanging out. That's not, that's not irreverent. That's, that's what Scripture teaches God wants. And the more we grow in that, the more we discover his love for us. I, Wendy and I have been married almost 25 years. And... Um, I, my love for Wendy now is very different than when we first got married. I mean, I loved her or I I wouldn't have married her, uh, obviously, but I didn't really know Wendy. 
I'm not, I'm not saying it was arranged marriage. It wasn't a mail order bride. We take a deep breath. We, we'd been, we dated for four years, but I had only discovered certain aspects of her character, her personality. And, and I got, a pastor once told me, John, you, you get married by faith. Like love leads you into it, but you're just, you're just praying and believing that the grace of God is going to be upon the two of you as you move forward. And you're still going to, still going to become who you need to be in the years ahead. But over time, as I got to know Wendy better, as I experienced her grace upon my life, as she forgave me for things that she didn't need to, as she extended mercy when I really deserved judgment, not only did a sense of appreciation develop, but, but this, this deep affinity, love, and affection continued to grow. And if, if, if loving God for you has become a, a duty or an obligation rather than a joyful expression. I pray that because of the prayer we just prayed, that's going to begin to change for you. So loving God means I offer him my affection. Secondly, uh, this definition would teach us that loving God means I offer him my gratitude. And gratitude is more than just, just saying, saying thanks. Thanks has become kind of a cheap word. It's kind of like saying bless you when somebody sneezes. Nobody really means it. You just think that that's something you're socially required to say. Same thing with thanks or thank you. Probably 50% of the time when I say thank you to someone in a, in a coffee shop or a grocery store, what I really mean is it's about dang time. I've been waiting too long. Right? Right? It's, it's become a cheap word. Gratitude is much deeper. Gratitude is a readiness to show appreciation for and return a kindness. It's a posture that prepares us for an action. It's, it's a living awareness and a, and a living appreciation of what God has done for us that, that encourages, inspires, and empowers us to do the same thing for other people. As I realize the depth of God's love for me, as I realize what he has done in forgiving and restoring me, there is such a deep appreciation that I am naturally positioned to offer that to other people. This is what Jesus meant when he told his disciples, freely you've received, freely give. As you understand and, and live with an awareness of, and it's a discipline, right? We, we have to, it requires some reflection. But as we reflect on the goodness and grace and the mercy of God, something happens inside of us that we become a conduit for that same grace and mercy to other people. We're, we're kind of living with this awareness of how, I'm, how am I going to live my life in response to God's love for me? Loving God with the totality of my being, I offer him my obedience, I offer him my gratitude, excuse me, my, my affection, my gratitude, and then the third one is I offer him my obedience. This may feel a little more familiar to you. I mean, some of you guys are like, oh, okay, there it is. I get it. He's God, so I have to do what he says. Obedience is a hard word. It's got a lot of negative connotations because we usually think about obedience in terms of something that we don't want to do. Clean your room. I don't want to clean my room. Don't talk back. I want to talk back. Don't hit your brother. I want to hit my brother. Obedience seems to be like a restriction of a behavior that we really, really want to walk out. But obedience Hear this. Think about this with me. Obeying Jesus really just means aligning with what's best for us. 
Would God ever ask something of you that is not in your best interest? No. And I'm not minimizing God's authority here. I'm not trying to say that he somehow can't tell us to do it just because he wants us to and he's God. He certainly can. And yet, in his directive will, as he, as he speaks to us about what he desires for us, it always comes in the framework of love. So I'm trying to help you think through obedience in that context. Think about it with me. What kinds of things does Jesus invite us to obey him in? It really boils down to two things. Don't do the things that hurt you and hurt others. Do do the things that bless you and bless others. Those are both categories that are spoken, that are, that are given in love. When God told Adam and Eve, don't eat of the tree, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he wasn't being a dictator, and he wasn't being a jerk. He was actually trying to protect Adam and Eve from themselves. He looked at them and said, choose life. And they went, well, I'm choosing death. And God said, well, I'm going to fix it. I won't even leave you stuck in the consequences of your own actions. When you link obedience to affection, which the definition of the word tells us to do, it changes the way it feels. It becomes a response to the love of God rather than a duty or an obligation. Because obedience allows us to remain in alignment with the plans and the purposes of God. And God is so awesome. I mean, he's so awesome that he takes it one step further. Not only does it allow us to come into relationship with him, but as we obey God, there is a blessing that's attached. Here's what he says. He says, if anybody loves me, he'll keep my word. He'll obey me. And then he says, I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you the Holy Spirit. I will give you what you need to continue to live in my will, because we all know you can't do it on your own. Me loving God involves obedience because obedience allows the goodness of God to be expressed in my life. And God wants the goodness, his goodness, to be expressed in my life. Another way of saying that is obedience, obedience helps God love me well, and God wants to love me well, which is why my obedience is an act of love toward God. I may be spinning you in circles right now. I'm going to say it again. God wants to bless me. He wants to express his love to me. And when I obey him, he's able to. When I obey him, he's able to do what he wants to do, which is why my obedience is an act of love toward God because it's allowing him to respond the way to me, the way he wants to. It's, it's reciprocal. Love is reciprocal. When Jesus tells the teacher that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your being, this is essentially what he's saying. He's telling that man, he's saying, offer God your affection, which is your heart. Offer God your gratitude, your head, how you position yourself, how you think about him, how you regard him. And offer God your obedience, your hands. This is what it looks like to love God with your, your whole being. And then Jesus is awesome. He, he puts the scribe on the bonus plan. He's like, that's the answer to your question. It's a pretty good question, pretty good answer. We both agree. But now I'm going to answer the question you haven't even asked me. You asked me the greatest commandment. Here's the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
Then he says, all the law and the prophets hang on this. We, we talked about that. But the purpose of the law, the purpose of the law that God gave, all the rules, rituals, and regulations, the purpose of the law was to teach the people of Israel how to live as God's people. These are the behaviors that would separate them from the nations around them. This is what it looks like when the kingdom of God is expressed on earth. This is what it looks like when the kingdom of God comes near. When God's in charge, people don't lie, they don't covet, they don't worship idols, they don't abuse others. When God's in charge, they care for the marginalized, the widow, the orphan, the, the foreigner among them. This is why God gave us the law, the people of Israel, the law. He wanted to paint a picture of what could be. The giving of the law, it was received, if you remember, with joy. It was a gift of hope. This is what's possible when the people of God live like the people of God. This is what it means when you're praying, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he says, all of this, if you love God and if you love your neighbor as yourself, you will naturally be fulfilling all the demands of the law. If you love God and if you love your neighbor, you are bringing the kingdom of God to bear in your community. You are living out, you are modeling, you are expressing to those around you what life looks like when God is in charge. People receive mercy. They receive grace. They receive forgiveness. They are cared for. They are healed. This is why Israel was so excited to receive the law. Now, the law also reminded them that they could not do this without the presence of the Holy Spirit. It made, made their, their need of a Savior very, very clear to them. And so Jesus comes, and as he's preparing to go to the cross, usher in the Holy Spirit that would allow us to live this new kind of humanity out in our community. He says it's all summed up in these two guys, love God and love people. And so one guy, trying to be smart, maybe trying to get off the hook, looks at Jesus and goes, all right, I hear you. Who's my neighbor? I think his motivation is if God gives me a small enough picture of a neighbor, I don't have to do it. For the Jews of Jesus' day, their neighbor were their fellow Jew, anyone who looked and acted and worshiped like them. Anyone else, they weren't neighbors, they were enemies, they were Gentiles. So Jesus tells them a parable, tells them a story that we have come to term the story of the Good Samaritan, which is in and of itself kind of funny because no Jew of Jesus' day would ever call a Samaritan good. They called them half-breeds. They called them dogs. They, a devout Jew would not set foot in Samaria. This was a group of people who was left behind when the rest of, of Israel was carried off into Babylonian captivity. And they intermarried with people of different faiths. And so they had polluted the Jewish faith. And so the Jews just thought they were the worst of the worst of the worst. So Jesus tells a story. He says, guys, you know there's a road, right, between Jericho and Jerusalem. Common knowledge. It was a very familiar road to everyone. It was a dangerous road that was known for robbers. It was a bit of a bedroom community. Uh, priests and Levites would live in Jericho, and they would commute into Jerusalem to work at the temple. And so a man is on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem, and he's attacked. And he's beaten, and he's left for dead. And a priest and a Levite both pass by on their, on their way to work. And as the man is laying there, they see him broken, bruised, and bleeding, and they walk by on the other side to fulfill their temple responsibilities. 
Now, those listening to Jesus would have understood this. It probably didn't surprise them because both the priest and the Levite, if they had temple duties, could not touch a man who was bleeding. They were for a period of time ceremonially unclean and would not have been able to perform their temple duties. So one could make the argument that they are actually fulfilling the requirements of the law as they cross the road. But the law without love is legalism. Jesus is pointing out that they do what they might think is the wrong, right thing, but when their heart is not open to the broken man, as they keep the requirements of the law, it's legalistic. And then Jesus says, a homeless, drug-addicted male prostitute comes by. You're like, wait a minute, I've read this story. It does not say that. That is correct. It does not say that. But in our cultural context, it's kind of a one-for-one. So as you're trying to figure out how would a Jewish person feel about approaching a Samaritan? Pretty equivalent. He comes by, he sees the man, goes to him and cares for him, puts him on his donkey, provides housing, provides medical care, commits to pay whatever costs are required for this man's healing. And then Jesus asks this question. He looks at this, he looks at the religious teacher and he goes, so who was the neighbor? The guy cannot bring himself to say the Samaritan. It's like he cannot do it. And so he goes, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. These are your, mer- these are your neighbors. Those in need of mercy and those capable of extending mercy. Those are your neighbors. Which covers who? Everybody. Jesus completely flips the script on Israel's traditional teaching about who's my neighbor and who's my enemy. And in case they missed it, in another passage, he just flat out goes, love your enemies. What's Jesus saying? Love your neighbor as yourself. To love others as yourself means to treat others as you would want to be treated in that same condition or that same situation. And the the cultural thing that he's completely deconstructing is this division between Jew and Gentile or Jew and Samaritan. He's saying to his listeners, you need to remember that you and they are essentially the same. And this is where we tend to struggle. I won't speak for you. This is where I tend to struggle. I don't feel the same as him. I am better than him. I have cleaned my act up. I am a follower of Christ. I'm not a drug addict. We readily identify differences and then we allow them to become barriers. And the tragedy is that our own forgiveness could become the great divide. We think because we have already received forgiveness, grace, and mercy that we're somehow better than those who haven't yet. And Jesus is saying to this religious teacher, you're more alike than you are different. We have similar needs and desires, hopes and fears, limitations and vulnerabilities. Scripture says that when Christ died for me, I had enmity with God. It means I was, I was his enemy. I was not simply dis- disillusioned or disconnected. I was antagonistically inclined toward God. And yet he, in his great mercy, gave his life for me. And I have to live as part of gratitude in a constant awareness of that because it will affect how I see other people. This is my neighbor. He's just living on the other side of that grace, mercy, and forgiveness that I've received. And without it, I'm in the same spot he is. And because he has the same vulnerabilities, hopes, fears, limitations, needs, and desires, it's pretty easy 
for me to figure out how to love him. I simply have to do what I would want him to do for me if the situations were reversed. Scripture says, treat others as you would have them treat you. It doesn't say treat others as they do treat you. That would be easier. Oh, you want to fight? Let's fight. Let's go. I'll meet you in the parking lot. I've got that gene. There is this thing in me that has to be constantly surrendered to Christ. Right? I mean, I am a constant work in progress. Because you hit me, brother, I want to hit you back twice as hard. And yet, it doesn't say do to others as they do to you. It says do to others as you would have them do to you. It's not about whether or not our our neighbors deserve it. Because they don't. Let's just be honest. They don't. But neither did we. Which is why gratitude is such an important part of loving God. Reminds us that we received what we didn't deserve. Reminds us how the love of God for us has brought us to a place of healing. Jesus put no requirements on people before he loved them. Aren't you glad? (laughs) Aren't you just really, really glad? I mean, once we experienced his love, he did say, hey, John, here's some things that I think you're going to need to change, but it's for your betterment, it's for your healing, for your blessing, not to your detriment. May we live the same. Because when we love God and we love people, we are bringing the kingdom of God to bear. The kingdom of God is not a future reality. There is a day in the fullness of time where Christ will return and everything will be restored. But until that time, we are daily extending the kingdom of God as we love him and as we love others. Guys, it is a powerful, powerful privilege. It's awesome. And I know it's hot in here, but I hope you're encouraged. And take a deep breath because I'm done. I I don't say that to say give me 20 more minutes. You should be deeply and profoundly encouraged as we discover how deeply and profoundly loved we are. As, as we leave this, this, well, it's this afternoon now. Oh, no, not quite. Ten more minutes. I want you to stand to your feet with me. I want to pray for you, and I want to speak a blessing over you. The prayer I'm praying for you, I'm praying for me, that we would grow together in affection toward God, because that will allow us to walk in his affection toward us, in his grace and in his mercy. And then I want to speak over you the ironic blessing you find in number six. There was a moment in time where God said to his priest, this is the blessing I want spoken over my people. And when God said, speak this blessing, it was because he was prepared to meet the blessing. He was going to do what was spoken. So we will pray, and then I want to close by speaking this blessing over you. Lord Jesus, thank you. God, thank you for your presence and your love. God, your grace and your mercy. I'm just freshly reminded of how you have given me what I don't deserve, and I am so incredibly grateful. Lord, would you allow us, if if anything else clouds kind of that picture of who you are, lead us through that. God, we want to be able to receive your love and return your love back to you. This is not only the greatest commandment, but it's the greatest privilege and the source of life. Lord, would you help us to do to others what we would have them do to us that not put a requirement on them as you did not put a requirement on us, but to extend love, forgiveness, grace, and mercy in Jesus' name.
I'd like you to place your hands out in front of you like this. As I speak this blessing over you, which I, I believe was very intentional on the heart of God, this is what he wants for you. This is what your loving Heavenly Father is prepared to do for you. That's why it was to be spoken over the people of God. The Lord bless you. That word bless means do good to you. The Lord keep you means protect and preserve you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Please visit us at mylfc.com for more information about our church. Thank you so much for listening.